In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Nicholas Van Dam, the inaugural director of the Contemplative Studies Center and an associate professor in the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience graduate. Dr. Van Dam discusses his 2018 paper, Mind the Hype, a critical evaluation and prescriptive agenda for research on mindfulness and meditation, which levels serious criticisms at his own field of mindfulness research and contemplative neuroscience, taking aim at poor methodological practices, problems with definitions, and the strong incentives in the field which can conflict with the pursuit of science. Dr. Van Dam reveals what he calls the unholy triad of mindfulness research, explores the theme of elitism in meditation, and raises questions about the studies conducted on Buddhist contemplative Mathieu Ricard, known as the happiest man in the world. Dr. Van Dam also considers the degree to which mindfulness can be meaningfully isolated apart from its traditional religious contexts, notes the adverse effects of meditation, and shares his thoughts for the individual meditator on who to trust in today's meditation marketplace. So without further ado, Dr. Nicholas Van Dam and Chelsea Fasano. Professor Nicholas Van Dam and Chelsea Fasano, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so delighted to have the both of you here today to discuss, Professor Van Dam, your work, and in particular, your article, 2018 article, published in Perspectives in Psychological Science, Mind the Hype, a critical evaluation and prescriptive agenda for research on mindfulness and meditation. To start, maybe I could read something from the abstract. During the past two decades, mindfulness meditation has gone from being a fringe topic of scientific investigation to being an occasional replacement for psychotherapy, tool of corporate well-being, widely implemented educational practice, and key to building more resilient soldiers. Yet the mindfulness movement and empirical evidence supporting it have not gone without criticism. Misinformation and poor methodology associated with past studies of mindfulness may lead public consumers to be harmed, misled, and disappointed. And then later in the, in the abstract, our goals are to inform interested scientists, the news media, and the public to minimize harm, curb poor research practices, and staunch the flow of misinformation about the benefits, costs, and future prospects of mindfulness meditation. And I understand when this article was published, it caused quite a hand grenade into <laughs> the, um, the mindfulness, you know. Well, we'll discuss what exactly this mindfulness thing is. My first question for you is, when and how did you begin to realize something was rotten in the state of Denmark? Rotten, I suppose, in the state of mindfulness research. Yeah, look, um, so the, this, this paper came out um, finally sort of in press in 2017, 2018. It was officially published. Um, and of course, we're now five years on from that. Um, so, uh, I mean, the, 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 there's more to probably talk about there and some of what's happened since. Um, but I think kind of recognition of sort of the issues that were discussed in the article, myself and, and the colleagues that I wrote it with, which, you know, I think there were 15 of us in total, um, started to notice these things. Uh, some of us, I think, going back to the early days of the formation of organizations like Mind and Life. Um, so Mind and Life sort of really came to prominence in um, about 2004. You know, that was when the, the major 
um, event with His Holiness the Dalai Lama happened at Emory University. And so that's really, I think, when 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 you look at the graphs and various things, that you know that's really when things took off. Um, and so I think even from that point, there were a number of my co-authors who sort of were starting to identify the types of problems we're talking about. Um, so this has kind of been there at at a, at a various you know at some, something of a low level, if not a medium level, sort of through, you know for quite some time. Um, it became clear, I think, for for all of us, increasingly as we got to the point of getting together to write the article. So over over the years, you know, between 2004, as a number of us got together at various events and conferences, you know, in a period of almost a decade, kind of having conversations, talking, seeing people talk about their research results, seeing certain app companies come into existence and take off and gain prominence, um, it really became clear to us sort of that the way in which the whole industry around mindfulness, meditation, and wellness, um, as well as sort of the research that we were conducting was potentially skewing off track um, and that we weren't adhering to best practices. Uh, so I say this sort of as it, it was quite a period of time over which we were witnessing sort of this kind of slow train, possible train wreck. And part of the, the writing of and discussions that led up to this article were kind of an effort to, I guess, Try to steer the train back on its on, on its natural course. Um, now I, I'm happy to discuss in greater detail whether or not I think we were successful in that because that's a whole other a whole other topic of discussion. Indeed, and we will define the problems you laid out in the article and so on. To what extent do you think, in brief, has there been a course correction? I think there's more awareness of the problem, and I think people are ready, more eager to recognize the problem as, you know, probably as evidenced by the fact that this particular article gets cited a lot. Um, the way in which it often gets cited sort of is, you know, at the end of the paper in a, in a limitation section, people say, of course, there are caveats, see Van Dam et al, 2018. Um, as to whether or not the, you know, the actual way in which the media is promoting these things and whether the science is getting better, I don't think it's corrected as much as we would have liked. I think many of the fundamentals you point out in the paper are haven't changed the the incentives for example uh at play haven't changed if, if anything they've become more pronounced yeah I, I would agree i think in terms of you know the way in which us as scientists sort of go about doing our work um the way in which i think in particular the media and organizations have popped up in the industry um the way in which app companies are promoting their products i would agree i think the incentives there have actually become more perverse in the sense that um it, it's become it's become you know that bad practices are, are being rewarded more and more um mm -hmm. and bad practices in particular of sort of giving the implication of good practices but not actually doing good practices if that makes sense could you say something more about that well i think what part, part of what's happened as a result of i think articles like ours is that there's this sense that people need to refer to evidence or people need to say things are, are science-based. So I think there's a real recognition, uh, and this is sort of something that I had, I don't think I or, or my colleagues had quite anticipated, that people would kind of utilize the, the points that we were making in the article as kind of a leverage point to kind of say, oh yes, we of course recognize that we need our work to be evidence-based or, you know, an organization that promotes mindfulness as part of a well-being program, you know, or um, an employee an employee assistance provider saying, of course, we recognize that our corporate well-being strategies need to be based on good science and good evidence. I think what's happened is that that's got even worse in the sense that they now incorporate that term and say, of course, what we do is based on good science and good evidence, but they actually don't do it. 
So it, it's in some ways, it's more harmful in the sense that they've now incorporated that phrase or that idea that it's evidence-based or that it's science-backed. But but the kind of actual science or evidence on which it's based is just really not there in many cases. That's fascinating. Uh, you, you lay out several categories of problem, a certain uh, methodology, for example, and even at the level of definition of the word mindfulness in the paper you describe that. I wonder if you might summarize some of those things and perhaps explain why it is that this paper had such an impact. Aside from the problems that you list in the paper, you also list some pretty serious implications of the problems. Uh, you talk about the practical level of what you call misinformation and propagation of poor research and methodology can lead to harm, actually, and various uh, problems like that. You talk about the philosophical level and misunderstanding of the work. I'm, I'm paraphrasing you here and its implications could limit the potential utility of a method that proposes unique links between first person data and third person observations. And you also talk about research into a, as you put it here, a potentially promising area may be halted for no reason other than people have become sick of hearing about it. <laughs> so these are some implications. So could you lay out what is the, what are the, what's the main thrust of the criticism in the paper? What are the implications of your criticisms? Yes, let's start there. Sure. I mean, so I often like to think about um, the, the the topics or the way that I've talked about it sort of in the, in the time since the article sort of as the unholy triad of, of, of marketing um, and mm -hmm. the, the, the way that the, the kind of triad of marketing or spin, I think, on selling mindfulness as a product or met selling meditation as a product is often that it, it cycles between three different kind of main selling points and i think the article actually does a really good job the way the way we structured it and, and, and wrote it of hitting on each of those three different points so the first is this one of definition um, and so you'll often hear um, promised or proposed by advocates of various um, platforms or, or teachings of mindfulness meditation, you know, this idea that it's, of course, a 2,500 year old tradition, you know, it, this idea that, oh, it's been around for a really long time, people have been continuously using the practice for a really long time, therefore it must work. Um, and so, you know, th that's a common marketing ploy. And I think there, there's many, many limitations and issues with that. But, you know, one of the comments or responses that I often make around that sort of are, well, you know, there's many practices that have been around for long, long periods of time that doesn't necessarily make them good. You know, we used leeches in medicine for very long periods of time. Um, just because it was popular didn't necessarily mean it was scientific or effective even. Um, and so one of the issues with the way that we think about this is that there's a, a fuzziness, if you like, around what mindfulness is. In other words, nobody really agrees what we're talking about. And it's in that fuzziness or lack of clarity around what we're actually talking about that all new problems emerge, right? So if mindfulness is whatever you want it to be, um, then basically anybody can sell you anything and, and put the label mindfulness on it. And that's one of the, the arguments that we make is, is, is really critically, critically problematic around the fact that we don't agree to a clear definition about mindfulness. And that's something that I think is has been taken up then by the wellness industry as they sell it, which is to say they, they stamp the word mindfulness on various products and offerings. Um, now, and the, the, the bigger sort of, I think, issue with the idea of, well, what is mindfulness really has to do with you know, if we don't know what we're offering, um, and it can be anything, well, then how do we actually ever gain any traction on whether or not it actually works, 
right? So in other words, if if mindfulness can be anything from meditation to coloring in to, you know, walking outside sort of for two minutes purposefully kind of feeling grass on your feet, um, then, you know, it, it's really hard to actually gain any evidence either way to say that it, it does or does not benefit people or harm people. Um, so, so that's the, the first point. The second point really has to do with the, the clinical evidence. And, and this is sort of the idea kind of what often happens when you, if you have a discussion or a dialogue with someone who's a prominent advocate of the industry, um, you can say, well, so what? It's a 2,500-year-old, 100-year-old thing, you know. Um, one comment I'll make, as I said previously, was sort of this idea that, you know, well, you know, things that have been, been being practiced for a long time doesn't necessarily mean they're good. But the other thing I'll commonly say is, do you actually think anyone is practicing today in the same way that they did 2,500 years ago? You know, so I highly doubt that the practice we do in contemporary times looks much like what was done 2,500 years ago. And usually people will acquiesce and say, of course, you're right. We don't practice in the same way or we likely don't practice in the same way. And of course, you're right. You know, just because it's been around a long time, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. And so what people will often then do is they'll deflect to one of the other two problematic areas and say, but what about the evidence from this area? And so then they'll often either shift to the clinical evidence or the brain evidence. And so the clinical evidence will often say, but there's so many randomized control trials. You know, we, we have all these studies looking at the benefits of mindfulness-based programs. And in reality, when you start to dig into those programs, what you realize is that we do have a lot of them, but they're really only in their infancy. You know, when we think about sort of comparisons to active controls, when we think about fidelity of um, giving the intervention, when we think about who is giving the intervention, what the benefits are, when we think about whether or not we're actually even bothering to measure um, unexpected, unpleasant events, we realize that we're, we're not really at the level of evaluating these programs clinically in the way that we are with many other interventions. You know, when you think about the number of RCTs that have been conducted on mindfulness relative to the number of RCTs that have conduct conducted on cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, we're talking about like 300 to, you know, some ridiculous number in the thousands. So we're, we really don't have the level of evidence that people would like to claim that we have. And when you look at kind of recent meta-analyses, the suggestion is, yes, it seems like it does work for some people some of the time, but it doesn't work any better than any of our other kind of gold standard offerings, nor does it even necessarily seem to work better than other kind of basic lifestyle activities like exercise, right? Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something about which we need to be aware that we can't sell it as saying it's better. So again, assume somebody acquiesces and says, okay, fine, fine. We don't quite have the clinical you know, evidence that we need to. Um, you know, it's, it's a new field. We haven't been around that long. So then they'll go to the brain science and they'll say, but it changes your brain. And of course, this is one thing that the media loves, you know, neuroplasticity. Um, mindfulness is neuroplastic. It changes your brain. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's heaps of issues. I just, I love it when people talk about something we don't totally even understand as neuroscientists, like neuroplasticity, which is so not really fully understood. Even the extent of neuroplasticity is in its infancy and being understood. So it's kind of like basing one thing we don't understand on another thing we don't understand. And then, you know, creating a loop. Absolutely. Well, that's, I guess my point sort of is the way in which the, the, the marketing happens is, is is really problematic in the areas in and of themselves, but it also is cyclical in the sense that sort of people will turn from one area to the other. And if they, they acquiesce and say there's a problem in that area, they'll then shift to another area. Um, 
but yeah, neuroplasticity, right? I mean, I think it, it is something we don't understand that well. I mean, it's it's not very long ago. I mean, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, you know, we basically, I remember a lecture prominently standing up in front of me, and this was in the, the mid 2000s saying, you know, no new neurons are born in the adult brain. And, you know, that's already been overturned. Like we know new neurons are being born all the time. So that's part of this idea of neuroplasticity, right? That the brain can change. Um, but But people are using this argument to sort of say, the brain can change, right? And so mindfulness and meditation must change the brain. But if there's neuroplasticity, what that actually means is that anything can change the brain. And in fact, everything does change the brain. But also, I think critically, the brain can be changed for both good and bad, right? So just because the brain changes, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. So a lot of the evidence around mm -hmm. how does the brain change with meditation, a lot of it is based on expert meditators, right? Which is to say you take a monastic, a monk or a nun who's been practicing for 30 plus years, and you look at what's going on in their brain, say, relative to some kind of control group. Um, now, I love to use the example of Mathieu Ricard, um, because this, I think it's a particularly useful kind of way of pointing out the problems here. If we look at Mathieu Ricard, and, and people may know Mathieu Ricard was labeled, you know, by a number of magazines as the happiest man alive. Um, and, and, and of course, it's a great point, you know, uh, and Richie Davidson has said a number of times, which I think is, is a very appropriate way of talking or thinking about this, that if nothing was going on in Mathieu's brain, or people like Mathieu, you know, if experienced monks didn't show anything extraordinary, what would be the point? You know, we would there would be no point in us actually studying this because if these people have been doing this for 30 years can't show anything cool, um, then what hope do us mere mortals have to ever achieve anything interesting or exciting? So it's a great place to start. But of course, as you start to unpack, well, who are these people like me too? You go, wow, this guy has a PhD in molecular biology, you know, under a Nobel laureate. Um, you know, his father was a famous philosopher. His mother was a famous um, artist. You know, he is, he's been the translator for the Dalai Lama in French for, you know, three decades. He's been practicing meditation on a regular active basis, now going on five decades. He spends three to nine months a year meditating in this beautiful hut overlooking the Himalayan mountains. You know, so I think when we start to recognize all of those factors, we go, how would anyone ever become like Mathieu? I don't know that they could. You know, and what I often jokingly say is, you too can be just like Mathieu if you happen to be born into the same kind of, you know, family that Mathieu was and complete your PhD with a Nobel laureate and become the translator for the Dalai Lama, which is to say, you know, this is not something that any anybody else can actually do, right? So, and we can't really differentiate when we scan the brains of monks, whether the things that we're observing are due to the fact that, they became monks. So what led them to become monks? And what is it about the monastic lifestyle versus the meditation? And that's one of the big challenges with the brain imaging is that um, often when we're comparing these people to other people, the, the things that ultimately led them to become monastics, you know, are probably critical factors. Now, there's other issues I can get into and talk about more. But you know, that, that's just to say sort of when we think about these three areas of issue, the definition or how long the, the how long we've been practicing meditation and mindfulness the clinical evidence you know how long or how, how to what extent do these things actually help people deal with wellness or anxiety or depression and then the neuroplasticity and that tends to be the cycle through which we circle um, and and if people kind of disagree with one somebody moves to the other but the point you make about expert meditators is something i think about a lot because it seems to me that to, to accomplish the task, which is a part of what I think you were saying, you would have to have an extraordinary brain 
to do the level of practice that is being done. So in in essence, it's sort of like studying any kind of elite, you know, Olympian athlete. It's of the mind, right? If we look at Michael Phelps, well, he probably has such an incredible genetic predisposition and a certain body length ratio that makes it so that he can become an Olympic swimmer. And it's really hard to take apart what his genetic potential was physically from the training he did, what enabled him to do the training. And then this total sum of all three parts, which enables him to be one of the best performers physically, but somehow we don't apply that mentality to Olympians of the mind. We sort of lump it all together into one concept and it must be the result of the practice and anyone can do it, which I think is sort of an interesting, um, assumption to make. <laughs> no, I think that's an apt analogy in the sense that, you know, when we think about sort of elite artists, elite performers of any kind, you know, we, we don't necessarily recognize the, the predispositions that kind of allowed them to get to where they were, nor, as you said, do we recognize the extent of the training that's gone into it. And the, so it's the, it's really the interaction between those things, right? It's nature and nurture, if you like, you know, they, they, you only really get to be an expert swimmer, you know, like Michael Phelps or an expert basketball player like Michael Jordan, you know, mm -hmm. or an expert sprinter or whatever, or chess player, if you have certain predispositions to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when we talk about sort of expert meditators, as it were, you know, there's certain things that likely paved the road for them from the outset and people saw potential in them and supported them on that path. And so to, to kind of try to extrapolate back and say, you know, any average person on the street can do this, that, that's not really true. You know, not only can any average person likely not do what they've done, but they surely don't have the opportunities or the affordances that were given to those elite individuals. And if they did, would they break a lot of bones along the way and have a lot of sports injuries and things like that, which is another thing we're coming across in the field is we're seeing that dosage matters and that as you get into these high performing doses of meditation, we see a ton of adverse effects happening. And I think for people who are extreme athletes, that's at sort of a given part of the path that there will be sports injuries, so to speak, of the mind. But somehow... Um, there hasn't been a strong differentiation between what it takes to be an elite level athlete of the mind and just going for a jog and which kind of dosage seems to be appropriate um, looking at a cost-benefit analysis in a realistic manner, right? So we get the conflation of those two things leads to a ton of confusion, thinking that more is automatically better, um, which is another issue that you guys point out in your article, I believe, so... Yeah. yeah, and look, I think I think you know the reality sort of is unfortunately that um, that there's a, there is this presumption sort of that everybody ought to be able to do exactly what these sort of elite performance athletes or elite mental athletes kind of can do, so to speak. And as you say, um, that's not necessarily true. You know, I mean, I often sort of draw the analogy that if you took sort of some of these monks who spend their lives kind of living in caves in remote settings, sort of, you know, focusing on meditation and developing meditation. And there's some really interesting historical context as to why, right? You know, historically only a very small percentage of monastics actually meditated. We're talking about like 5% of Buddhist monks, right? So th there's a group sort of that was believed that they had the aptitude and they had the, um, they had developed or accrued the good karma to have a chance at enlightenment. And so they were kind of like we deal with elite athletes, right? They're in the top, you know, 1%. So let's really put them on the stage. Um, but but I think if you took those top 1% of people and you then said, hey, go hail a cab in Times Square or wander through Times Square, you know, or, or navigate the busy streets of London, it could be really hard for them, right? Because they're not used to that level of sensory input. And so mm -hmm. when you then talk about, well, is this the kind of thing the average person can do? I mean, the average person is usually 
has usually developed or adapted to the fact that they have to navigate through the busy streets of London or Times Square, you know, and so, or also they don't really have three hours in their day to sit down and meditate because they have lots of responsibilities. So, I mean, even whether or not, you know, the idea of giving them three hours of practice is a good idea, do they actually have the space in their day and their lives to do it is a whole other question that I think we haven't really asked. Indeed. I wonder if we might loop back to the first of your three your dark triad of, uh, <laughs> of mindfulness marketing, which is this issue of definitions. And, and two, two questions, really. The first is, I wonder if you might illustrate some of the variety of definitions that are used and, and why that variety, uh, some of those varieties of definitions don't necessarily sit well with each other. That's the first thing. And the other thing is you mentioned that often it's cited that mindfulness is a two and a half thousand year old practice and so on and so forth. It seems that in a lot of researchers are deriving their own definitions uh, also for, for what purpose uh, to perhaps to desacralize um, or secularize the, the practice to for a sort of laboratory setting uh, for a research setting, perhaps, or maybe to valence uh, it in the direction in which they're studying and so on. There's all sorts of possibilities as to why that might be happening. I wonder if you might comment also on the degree to which mindfulness definitions used in research relate at all to traditional definitions. Interviewing expert meditators, are we defining mindfulness in the same way that those meditators are defining it? What are the differences there? Um, would there be profit in more dialogue across those lines? Uh, if there is difference. So there's two questions really is the variety of definitions used in the research and to what degree, if at all, those definitions relate to, uh, should we say, traditional sources? Yeah, so I think, I mean, firstly, sort of the, the, the definition, the one that is most commonly used um, is the one that John Kabat-Zinn introduced. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think everyone agrees that mindfulness has something to do with attention and awareness. And so, you know, John Kabat-Zinn sort of provides this definition of um, it's awareness that arises by paying attention. Right? So that's the first part of his definition, um, awareness that arises by paying attention, but it's it's something that you do in a specific way, right? So he says you do it on purpose, you do it non-judgmentally, and he talks about the present moment. Um, so that that's interesting when you start to unpack it. So as I said, I think everyone kind of gets that there's this element of awareness and attention. Of course, as you start to unpack the original Pali or Sanskrit terms, Pali or uh, Sati or Smirti, um, it, it gets a little bit more complicated. You know, when you look at sort of well, what exactly do we mean by that? Um, you know, Buddhist historical Buddhist sort of and scholars of Buddh Buddhism sort of, you know, say that that Sati or Smirti sort of you know have different implications. You know, the 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 connotations and the denotations of the word that is the dictionary sort of definition versus what it might imply may mean very different things. And so um, you know, in, in Buddhist kind of context, you know, attention and awareness kind of often have different terms. So that 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 even starts to get a little messy. And and I think we we many of us agree, well that's the simplest thing, right? Is sort of awareness and attention kind of playing off one another. Um, so even that I think is not is not definitive. Um, but but then I think we go even further to this idea sort of of okay the the intention you know it's on purpose um or or present moment it's 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 focusing on the now or it's done in a non-judgmental or accepting way um and and i think these these latter three these sort of adjectives or attributes of how we pay attention start to get even more controversial 
And um, some people kind of leave these things out entirely, you know, or some people kind of focus on them entirely. And so when you look at some of the, and, and, I, and I've given talks about this sort of um, over the years to particular organizations that are trying to kind of think about how they manifest mindfulness. And um, in particular, sort of one example stands out to me where, um, you know, in the kind of education or the corporate sector where people kind of use terms, they really mix all these different ideas in. So one example is, um, the some, one thing that gets thrown in is calm or relaxation, right? So I'm not sure how that emerges or how that gets thrown in, but that's not necessarily there, you know, in that definition I gave from Kabat-Zinn, and it's not necessarily there in kind of the original version of mindfulness, as it were. Um, when we talk about the present, sometimes there is sort of an overemphasis on the present, you know, to the to the extent sort of that people will say it's all about being fully in the now, and within the Buddhist context, it's quite interesting, right? Because that is not emphasized to anywhere near that the extent that kind of it gets played, you know, played up to sort of in popular discussion. Think about say Eckhart Tolle, right? I mean, I think one of his books is called The Power of Now. I mean, so like the present moment thing is the entire thing. Um, whereas within the Buddhist context of mindfulness, that's just one part of it. One of the things that I that I really like to refer to is um, the, the way that we talk about minding your head or minding the gap there's an element of traditional mindfulness that sort of is said to be analogous to that that it's actually there's a recollection or a memory a, a recollection that i've decided to try my best to be in the present or try my best to pay attention to what i'm doing as opposed to being off somewhere else but that doesn't mean that it's all about being here and now and kind of disregarding my history or my future. Um, in other words, there's an element of actually going, well, what am I doing now and how does that relate to my past and how does that set me up for the future? And that, that I think, translates then into this idea of um, non-judgment or acceptance. Um, for, for many people, I think, in the popular um, vernacular, the, pop, the popular sort of context when we talk about acceptance or non-judgment, there's a sense of, well, we just have to accept it, whatever it is, or not judge anything. And that can create problems for people, right? Like, essentially, if it's just acceptance, I think some people can go, oh, I'm in a terrible relationship, you know, um, and, and my partner does terrible things to me or is awful to me. I guess I just have to kind of accept that that's part of the relationship. No, no, no. You actually have the ability to stop that in, that in the relationship, right? Or you are doing something that is unhelpful for you. You have the ability to change your the way you think about it and the way the way that you exhibit your behaviors to actually change that, Right. And when you think about the Buddhist context, what I often emphasize is rather than non-judgment, I like to use this term discernment, right? In, in Buddhism, there's often this idea of skillful versus unskillful. And I think what we mean by skillful versus unskillful is does a particular pattern of behavior or a pattern of thinking or pattern of being really, does it help us towards a certain goal? And so if it does, it's skillful. If it doesn't, it's unskillful. And the idea is that you're trying to reinforce skillful behaviors and kind of undermine, as it were, unskillful behaviors. So that's not quite the same as non-judgment, right? Now, of course, for a Western audience, discernment is a really challenging concept to wrap your head around. Um, and you know, when people start the practice, I think they really struggle with something like that. So non-judgment kind of makes sense. You know, we're very judgy, especially of our own thoughts. So it's often really nice to think, oh, okay, let's not be so judgy. But taking that to a further degree, I think we get complications of people not really understanding that you don't have to accept everything. You know, just as you don't have to be fully always entirely 100% in the now, then there's these sort of issues around, you know, um, 
present moment, as I said, or intention. Other things that get thrown in are things like slowing down. You know, we're, we're moving too fast. Things are going too fast. You know, you can go back centuries and people saying that it's the pace of modern life, you know, that's causing the problem. And, you know, people have been complaining about this probably since people have been complaining. So, you know, yes, there is something particularly fast paced about modern life. But is it actually that things are moving too fast or we're moving too fast? Well, this has kind of always been an issue. Um, so is it slowing down? I'm not really sure it's slowing down. Um, is it concentration? Sure, concentration is packed into mindfulness. Um, you know, there's an element of sort of we we use concentration as as part of the practice often, but is it the same thing? Again, I'm not sure. Um, is it doing one thing at a time? Well, again, I'm not really sure. Part of the way that people often practice mindfulness is they may focus on the breath while also being aware of other sensations. By definition, that's multitasking, right? So, so all of this is to say that the kind of common definition that gets provided may not necessarily fit with the way that it was historically thought of. And as you said, or as you flagged, the way in which it gets used in research, people often pick and choose certain elements of it. You know, they might pick the attention and awareness component because that's easy to study. And we have to do this as scientists. We have to operationalize things. If you said to me, study love, I would say, cool, um, particularly if you said, you know, here's a million dollars to study love, but love is not something I can get my hands on. I can't hold on to it. So I need to come up with a way of defining what is love. So I might say, well, the number of hugs that you give someone. I, as a scientist, know that that's not love, but I need something I can actually quantify or measure, and maybe that's a good proxy. And so we make this kind of error intentionally, knowing that it's not a perfect equivalent, but hoping that it gets us in the ballpark of the thing we're interested in. Now, you mentioned also the historical context. Um, that's really interesting, right? Because mindfulness within the Buddhist context or tradition was one piece, right? So mindfulness was one piece of this broader set of practices, the Noble Eightfold Path, right? It was one subcomponent of this kind of structure or this bigger picture of three practices or three kind of broad areas that people worked on. So there was kind of wisdom or world worldview, how you kind of understand or perceive or engage with your world. There was ethical conduct or how you go about living your life. And then there was mental development and mindfulness sits within mental development. So when traditionally speaking, when people thought about mindfulness, the worldview, how they thought about the world or how they engaged with the world or what they thought would happen after you die was part of the story, was part of the picture. Um, that's a really complicated one, so I'll, I'll leave that one because I think the next one is actually even more interesting. The ethical conduct was critical to people. So when they talked about mindfulness, they talked about right mindfulness, right? So in other words, mindfulness used in a particular way towards a particular end goal. And the reason that this is really important is a conversation that's come up a number of times is we can talk about the characteristics that we colloquially use to describe mindfulness. If you if you if you take that kind of to its logical end, you could say a sniper is really mindful, right? A sniper, as they lie down, are perfectly aware of their body, their breathing, their environment. The rifle is an extension of their body. Before they pull that trigger, they're gauging what's going on with the wind. They're gauging where their body is positioned. They often take a deep breath, right? There's slow breathing processes. Um, so is a sniper mindful? Well, it depends on which definition you use. If it's just about being in the present, being aware, um, and the ethical means or the ethical components, the end product, what's it used towards doesn't matter, then you kind of almost have to admit that the sniper is mindful. 
But if the end point matters, if what they're doing with that skill matters, as the traditional model would suggest it does, then it's not mindfulness because the goal of being a sniper is to kill someone, right? And killing someone is fundamentally against the tenets of Buddhism. So if you're, you're using a practice to develop your capacities to ultimately do things that are bad in the world, that's not right mindfulness. It may be mindfulness, but it's not right. So I think that's really critical when we think about you know, definitions and how it fits with the historic definition. So did I, did I answer both of the questions or the questions that you put towards? Yes, I think so. And of course, mindfulness, and as you pointed out, means different things in different contexts. Even within the tradition, two and a half thousand year tradition, spread to many different cultures, used in many different ways. It's not like it's uh, it's uniform even within the tradition, the tradition itself. But across these, these traditions, there are various schema of meditational states, various uh, accounts of expected outcomes or experiences that the practitioner may undergo and so on, uh, affected uh, by various practices they might they may undertake. I wonder if you see any uh, potential in those schema, or should we as researchers simply start afresh from a secular approach and disregard those things and, and expect perhaps that, well, if there's anything in it, we'll find it through science. Yeah, look, that, that's a really brilliant question. And I think cuts right to the point, um, which is, you know, should we just reinvent the wheel, so to speak? You know, I think my argument has often been, even though, look, of course, as you say, um, Buddhist community and practitioners of mindfulness, you know, the people that have been doing this for 2,500 years, they don't necessarily agree on what it is they're doing or how they ought to do it. And as you said, you know, there, there are many vehement disagreements and sometimes even wars. There's the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front, right? So, you know, oftentimes sort of people are vehemently saying, no, no, you know, we have the right mindfulness and you have the wrong version. Um, and of course, you know, how we practice it and what it's about, you know, is quite evident, I guess, in the, the forms of traditional ways in which it's practiced, right? You've got the, you can look at sort of Vipassana retreats, the Goenka style retreats, 10 day intensive silent practice retreats where you're practicing for, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. Um, and that sort of is, is vehemently held to be the only way that you can learn it. Um, and then of course, there's other contexts in which people would say, well, it's all about, it has to happen in a particular order. You know, you have to develop shamatha or calm abiding or focused attention before you can start to sort of explore the reaches of the mind and the thoughts and the emotions as they pop up. So first and only first, can you focus on the breath, develop a clear awareness, and then you can start to, to, to go outward. And then of course, there's even more complexity sort of thinking about um, how do we get there? You know, is it just focusing on the breath? Do we have to focus on the body? Do we need to explore states like the jhanas, you know, where sort of we're focusing on bliss and joy? And in some traditions, they would say, all the magic is in the jhanas. And other traditions, they would say, no, 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 the only thing you need to do is focus on mindfulness. That's that's it. That's the, the most direct, the most obvious path to awakening or enlightenment. So it's a really important point that, yes, the, the traditions don't necessarily agree. However, it's their practice, right? We've appropriated it. You know, we've taken this idea that they've been refining and working on for a very, very long time. Um, and that's not to say that sort of just because they've been working on it, we should default and defer to them and say, you know everything. And of course, what you do works because they don't necessarily agree. But I think to say, to, to have the um, hubris to think that, you know, we can just take the bits of, that we like and leave the pieces that we don't because we're science scientists, you know, because we have a modern perspective on things and because we're not caught up in the trappings of belief um, that we can somehow cut right to it, so to speak, I think is, is quite um, 
quite hubristic. You know, I think it, there's, a, there's a level of kind of chutzpah that's required to sort of take that approach. And one of the things that I often advocate for is that we need to be having conversations with the people, the traditions from whom these practices originate, you know, without talking to them and trying to understand, well, why did you use this? Why did you instruct people to practice this way? Um, what was it about this particular element, this emphasis, the skillful versus non-skillful? Why did you use that? So it's not to say that we have to defer to them and say, you're absolutely 100% right. But it is to say, we should hear them out. We should listen to them. We should invite them into the discussion and say, help us to understand why this was important for you. And then as scientists, I think what we can then do is rather than making up our own version of this and go, oh yeah, yeah, we kind of get it. It's attention and awareness, it's present. Let's do that. Let's be in the now. We go, oh, I see. There was, there was important elements of ethics. There were important elements of thinking about karma. There are important elements of thinking about enlightenment or awakening. And what we can do is we can say, okay, well, as a scientist, I can't study rebirth. It's just kind of off the table. You know, it's not really something I can really get evidence for or against, or it'd be incredibly hard to do so. Um, but I can try to think about, well, what does that mean? You know, how might it be sort of that a broader worldview or having a particular orientation towards your life might be important to the way in which you practice. And I can then think about the way in which I study it to say, well, if you think that you ought to live an eth ethical life, or if you think that you ought to live your life in a way such that it's towards the benefit of all beings, that's very different than if the only benefit is for the individual, right? And in, in Western society, in secular kind of society, neoliberal capitalism focuses on the individual, right? It's it's your responsibility, all the all the the glory, and also all the kind of um, the dismay, you know, whether the practice succeeds or fails solely rests on your shoulders. That's not how this historically worked. You know, it was embedded in a much broader context of practice in a tradition, in a community. And so I think if we don't acknowledge that and consider that, we're missing a giant piece of the picture. And as new evidence sort of emerges about, well, how do people actually seem to benefit from learning mindfulness? There's suggestions that things like being in the group working with others, having a community of practitioners around you to talk you through your experiences and make sense of them and situate them is really important, right? So that's quite different practicing with a group of others and, and having a teacher to sitting alone in your front room with your headset and a mobile phone and listening to some guru tell you how to practice, right? Those are very different things. And so I think, you know, when we, when we think about sort of how we study those things, we cannot assume that what we see or observe when you're just listening to that guru giving you guided instruction to you as an individual is the same thing as what happens when you practice with a teacher in a group of people in a community. It's kind of, if you think about, I mean, I know I'm making a lot of analogies on this podcast, but somehow I think they help because with mindfulness, as you said, it's become shrouded in these sort of veils of mystique that make it seem like it's something quite different from the rest of uh, all things. And so it's nice to kind of compare it. So I think if I was thinking about, for instance, baking a cake or some kind of recipe, and I was to say, well, okay, I have these whole continents of people who've been baking cakes, right? And they have these kind of ingredients to them. And then I was to kind of say, well, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll just not use flour, I'll use like peanut dust. And then over here, I'll put in, you know, a baking soda, it doesn't really matter, I don't know. And you know, so it's like, how many elements can you take out or modify before it's not a cake anymore is a question, right? And then, and, and then furthermore, if we create all of these things, we're not really sure are cakes because we've modified many elements of them. 
then we try to measure these supposed cakes or non-cakes. And then we say, well, based on these 20 million different recipes, I just created all the traditional ones, plus these myriad of modifications I've made. Now, do we like this? Does it taste good? It, it becomes extremely obvious what a foggy question that would be scientifically, right? But when we do that with mindfulness, somehow it seems sort of fine because I think of the assumption that there's something mysterious and indefinable, which is a part of some of the traditions. However, what happens because of that, in my view, is that when we start messing with the cake recipe, because we're not, we don't want to use grandmas to the T, what we do is we create a void. And my question for you is who and what do you think is filling that void? Because it seems that we, when we get rid of a set of religious assumptions, we in necessarily the void will suck back in some other assumptions and whose assumptions are being are filling that void are making the cake is the question that that interests me that do you have an answer opinion on that <laughs> or do you agree with my yeah, analogy I have, I have opinions on everything uh, I'll, tr I'll try to give you an answer though sort of based on kind of what 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 i what i've observed and sort of what i've read and um what i've seen and i think i, I think that kind of baking is actually a really good analogy because if you ever try to bake you know if you deviate too much from the recipe it goes horribly wrong you know i mean i think thinking sort of similarly sort of around like well what is a chocolate cake you know like what's the essence of a chocolate cake? You know, what bits can you take out and leave in and still get a chocolate cake? Well, surely if you don't include chocolate in the recipe, you know, that's a problem, right? It's no longer a chocolate. It may be cake, but it's not chocolate cake, right? So like we can at least agree that there should be chocolate in it. Um, should there be flour? Well, there's flourless chocolate cake. So, you know, I mean, there's other versions. Of, so like, I think it is a really useful analogy in the sense that you go, well, there, chocolate has to be there. So attention and awareness have to be in mindfulness, but what are the other bits and pieces? I don't know. It's a little bit more confusing. Um, as you said as well, the recipe analogy is really useful, right? Like, well, there's a certain set of instructions that we ought to follow. If we do follow those instructions, there's a good chance we'll get something that resembles a cake. But there's skill that goes into making the cake and there's practice as well. And, you know, baking is hard as is meditation, you know, like doing mindfulness meditation is a very hard thing that you kind of have to practice to get right. You know, if you do something slightly wrong, the oven's too hot or you add slightly the wrong amount of flour or you, you know, you're, the way in which you measure the ingredients, your scale is broken, you know, you can, you can have disastrous results. Um, so this assumption of how do we create the recipe um, or this assumption that's sort of like, hey, use whatever recipe you want, um, I think is what, what you're talking about. Like if mindfulness is anything, like it's chocolate, right? You know, and we're making cake. So just fill the rest of the stuff with whatever you want. Use whoever's recipe you want. Who is then writing the recipes? Exactly. I think as a society sort of as a whole, or, you know, as we think about kind of the contemporary world as a whole, we're moving away from traditional religious thinking. So that's the trend that we see. Fewer and fewer people affiliate with organized religions. So where have people gone? Well, I think people have gone towards the idea of science. Have they actually gone towards science? That I don't know. You know, science is not per se a religion, but there's a particular set of assumptions and beliefs in science, which is to say that there's a method and there's a way in which we collect evidence, but science ultimately is not necessarily um, a way in which we can explain the origin of things. You know, in other words, we don't know why it all started. You know, we have theories about the Big Bang, for example, but we don't know what caused the Big Bang. Science doesn't really have answers to that. But there is a belief, and I think this is something that's important for to, to be said or to be acknowledged, which is that if you're atheist or agnostic and you trust science, that we 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 actually do have a level of faith in science that is not dissimilar 
to the level of faith that people have in religions. We trust or we have faith that science will give us the answers, right? And so even though there's lots of things that we don't understand, we kind of, we trust or we assume that eventually we'll work it out. Eventually that this particular method of understanding the world will bear fruit, will help us to make sense of it. So there is a level of faith there that is sort of, you know, that that is adhered to and used. And I think it's important that we recognize that because if we do, that makes interfaith dialogue, so to speak, and I mean that sort of in the broadest possible sense, where, you know, agnostics and atheists and people that, you know, affiliate as spiritual but not religious are allowed into the conversation and makes the conversation richer, because we recognize all of us come to the table with some particular assumptions and beliefs. Now, when we think about who is creating the recipes, to some extent, scientists are doing this, right, as to some extent, sort of people that are going, oh, hey, there's a huge gap. You know, um, but but it's interesting because I think it's a particular type of scientist. You know, it's a scientist who also wants to be an Oprah and who wants to write a book and who thinks that maybe I can, you know, I spent years trying to get tenure and I spent years trying to kind of, you know, work my way up the academic ladder and hierarchy and I'm not getting the recognition I want and I'm not getting paid what I ought to. What if I just write a how-to book? You know, what if I just take this concept that I've been working on, I catch in on my credibility, and I just basically say, hey, I'm the expert, um, and I shift towards a mode of opinion, and I all of a sudden just say, well, because I think that this is the case, and because I'm a scientist, you know, I'm the one who knows how to tell you how to bake the cake. Um, when in reality, all you've actually done is study cakes. You never actually made them, you know, so mm -hmm. to, to go further with your analogy. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, the other major thing that happens, and I think we have to think about this in the context of how does the contemporary modern world work, right? We operate in a system of capitalism, right? We're, we're, whether we like it or not, we're stuck with it. So in a void, in a market void in particular, who fills that is people that seek to profit from. And I think that's one of the things we've witnessed. So yes, scientists have tried to help us make sense of it. But many of the ways in which we as scientists try to explain things are too complicated for the vast majority of people. We talk about things with nuance, right? There's this many grams of sugar and, you know, there's this many, you know, ounces or whatever of flour. The public, you know, people at large, they go, tell me what to do. I need an answer. How do I, how do, I do this thing to kind of get the cake? Just quickly, I don't have time. I don't want to read a 50 page instruction manual. I don't want to read the joy of cooking. You know, I just want to make a cake. I've got 30 minutes. It's my kid's birthday. Easy you know, bake. So they, exactly. They want a quick fix. Give me the pre-made, you know, let me, let me get it off the shelf. Um, and so that, that is a useful analogy. I think even further, right? Because then you see, okay, people want something quick and fast. Now you've got commercial interests. You've got people recognizing a gap and avoid and going, oh, you know what? I can give people, you know, whatever it is, Betty Crocker's pre-made chocolate cake box and say, take this mix, put some eggs and milk in it, chuck it in the oven, and you're good to go. So what we then see is a whole bunch of other people saying, you know what, don't really worry about, worry about that ethical stuff. It's not really that important. You know, just use our recipe. Um, you too, for only, you know, an annual subscription of $99.99 um, for five minutes a day, you too can have enlightenment you too can have the benefits and the joys of what the monks of old, you know, 2,500 years ago, you too can have the same outcomes and results. And so it's this clear and obvious gap filling, mm -hmm. right? Which is to say they're marketing a product based on the fact that people want answers. 
if there's no longer religion to explain things, if people are a little bit dismayed that science hasn't given them the answers, who is going to give us the answers? And so a lot of what we see, I think, with mindfulness and meditation and the wellness industry more generally is people going, I no longer have my traditional exp explanations for what life is all about. How do I find purpose and meaning? Science hasn't quite given me that. They keep saying, go back and do another experiment. So commercial organizations have jumped in and gone, hey, we can sell you something that will give you meaning and purpose. You know, come on this retreat, pay $8,000, come to Bali. We'll teach you all about that. This is so fascinating. And it's really interesting to me because I think this conversation around essentially the assignment of authority and the underlying assumptions that back the belief in science is not being had. So we're not having the conversation about how is authority assignment done in traditional context? How do you become a teacher? How does someone say, okay, you're a professional cake baker, you've baked enough cakes, now you can, now you know cakes, right? Versus how like you said, people who study cake baking, but don't necessarily do it. And we haven't really broken down and gone back into that authority assignment structure on both sides and discussed how that will be translated through this new generation of proliferation of definitions, essentially. And then furthermore, we haven't seen how the gap in doing so has been filled by other interests and motivations, such as academic success, commercial interest, and so on. And so there's this whole process occurring of the proliferation of mindfulness that is being filled by motivations and assumptions that are completely unsaid. And so there's not necessarily anything per se totally terribly wrong. I mean, that's an arguable point. You know, I don't think it's maybe optimal, but the the wrongness, any wrongness that is there is being perpetuated by the silence surrounding it. And so that's yeah, kind of I think people I mean just, well. Mm, that's what I was going to ask is what do you think is motivating the silence? I think people generally mean well, like I don't think the vast majority of people have malevolent intent. You know, I don't think people are going out and going, we're going to cause problems or we're going to like, you know, intentionally sell a product to people that is is going to fleece them. You know, like I don't, I mean, I, I do think there are a small proportion of bad actors out there that go, I can make a lot of money selling this crap, you know, that essentially promises to do a lot, but actually doesn't. You know, I'm sure those people exist, but I think the vast majority of people are actually kind of, approaching this from there's a genuine problem here and I have genuine answers or I think I do and shouldn't I also be looked after you know shouldn't I also be able to take care of myself and my family in the process I think that's part of mm -hmm. what's happening fundamentally the the allocation of authority or the assignment of authority I think is a really interesting question you know how do we as a society or as a collection of people decide who's the expert um you know that's that's a tricky issue you know like traditionally how did people do that well how did we pick who was the head priest or not well we, we really didn't you know um and arguably sort of how academic institutions decide who is the head or the lead of things i, I don't think it's quite as democratic as we'd like mm -hmm. it to be um so that, that's a particularly interesting issue right of you know but but i guess when i when i wanted to say around that is this allocation of authority i think is we also presume when we think about sort of academics or scientists, when we talk about the cake analogy, you know, we often assume that people should either be studying them or baking them, right? Mm -hmm. But in other words, you know, and to draw the analogy further, you know, if you think about scientists who study mental health or scientists who study meditation, there's there's this kind of naive assumption that the people who study mental health or the people who study medita meditation have never experienced mental health issues themselves or don't meditate themselves, which I can almost guarantee you is not true. You know, a vast majority of meditation researchers themselves practice meditation. Um, a vast majority of people who study mental health have had mental health experiences either directly or in their families. 
So all of that is to say, if we're if we're assuming that these people are 100% objective, they're they're not because right their own experiences are going to bias how they interpret their data. So if you take someone who's a scientist but they're also a Tibetan Buddhist, if they get evidence that actually does not support their world belief, they have to decide what to do with that. Right? Do they undermine their system of belief, their structure of ideas, the thing that's held their life together? Or do they honor the kind of scientific code, as it were? Which faith do they do they adhere to? Mm-hmm. I think that's a challenge. Um, now, how 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 what's the what what was the core question at the end? I was just trying to. I'm curious about your opinions on the motivations for the silence itself, meaning that there is this really quite big silence surrounding many of the things we've discussed so far while it's being talked about it's in some uh, conversations there's certainly a lot of people who as you said are just jumping from any argument to any other argument to avoid having these conversations and i'm wondering what you believe that the motivations for maintaining the silence are for people what your experience is around those um acts of um I don't know. I'm blanking on the word. the 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 idea of avoiding the avoiding it. Why Why perpetuate the silence? Essentially, I, th- I think I think that the most logical answer that I have that it's probably not very satisfying, but I think it makes the most sense is just that to do things well, to do science well, it's really hard, and it's very slow. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true when we talk about conversations and discussions about going, what do we think mindfulness means? Or what do we think meditation is all about? Or how do we address the issue that the techniques that we use to study these concepts are probably not perfect? What ought we to do? Like, how do we solve the problem? I think that's a really hard conversation to have, and it's going to take a really long time. And we have to sit down and we have to hear other people express their doubts, express their concerns. We have to do a lot of self-examination and go, what's what's my bias? What's in it for me? What am I overlooking? And I think there are very few systems that are configured to support slowing down the the self-examination, right? There's no reward for somebody to step back and go, you know what? I don't know that I actually have this perfectly. Let me think on it for a while. Let me have more debates and discussions. Um, you know, let me really try to figure it out and really be clear on what it is I'm trying to understand before I start running experiments or asking questions or selling products. Certainly organizations or companies, it's not in their interest to kind of spend a year or more taking stock of their offerings and whether or not those are based on best practice, right? They'd go out of business. Um, most organizations are working on quarterly profit cycles, right? So for them, there's a huge pressure to turn out a new product quickly. You know, if they're going to rebrand, they don't have time to sit around and go, what is exactly the right brand? What they need to do is they need to come up with a new brand quickly that leverages the the ability to capture on their old brand, but also allows them to move in a new direction. And I think there's a similar problem in the context of science, which is that, you know, there's a formula that people have that they think kind of allows them to have success in the academic space. We know what gets us, well, I should say we, you know, people kind of roughly have a vague idea of what gets them success in academia, right? We kind of know what will allow us to get grants, what allow us to publish papers in high profile journals, what will get us media attention, what might get us a book contract. People have a rough sense of that. And so saying to them, 
you have to throw all that art and start over, mm. you know, it's not really something that's very appealing. So I think people know that there's a problem, but I often joke that essentially we're building the plane while we're flying it, you know, like it, it, it's, we're, we, we need to continue on the journey. Um, but in reality, what we probably should do is sort of land the plane, kind of really pull it apart and try to figure out what's going on um, before we try to fly it. But, but the, the pressures of the world are such that no one will allow us to do that. Right. They, they need to get to their destination. So perhaps I'm taking the analogy too far, but but that hopefully gives you kind of some sense of, I think, a big part of the problem. You know, it also strikes me that a group of you did get together and did write articles on the problems and that many of the article, many of the authors on the article are some of the most prominent meditation researchers out there. So in a way, you were basically pointing the finger at the field that your lives depend on and we're willing to do that for the sake of something. And I'm wondering what do you think that was? I mean, amongst us authors, and I think it's worth noting sort of that, you know, that this was a, you know, three to four year process, you know, like, I mean, it wasn't a fast process. I mean, we got together to have the first formal discussion about, you know, kind of putting out this concerned paper to say sort of something's wrong and we really need to fix it. I mean, that was a three to four year back and forth discussion and dialogue and finding a place that, you know, an academic outlet that would accept it was similarly sort of complicated. Um, I think all of us sort of agreed that we cared enough about the practice. And I guess to, to go back, mm-hmm. Steve, because something you said early on, right, is that we all felt as if there is some real potential in this practice and that's that there are a significant number of people that could get that could receive benefit from it. That was a big motivation as to why we wrote the paper, um, you know, which is to say sort of we all really wanted and continue to want, I think, for things to be better. We really want people to have reliable, accurate information. We want to kind of think about how do we do this better? Um, And we took four years to really make sure that we kind of got the message right, such that it would be attended to, it would be listened to, that people would actually make some effort to try to integrate our suggestions and recommendations. Um, And it really was kind of a labor of love for many of us. Now, at the same time, I will kind of wholeheartedly and honestly admit for me, I was very prepared to throw in the towel. You know, basically when Mm. this was being published, I was in the position of kind of feeling like, I'm not really sure there's hope. And, you know, if I can't do anything else, if I can just kind of throw this out there as my Mm. swan song and kind of hope that maybe it does something, but, you know, also knowing maybe it won't do anything. Well, at least I've done something in this field before I potentially bow out of it. Now, Mm. for me in particular, I think what I can say is that the response to the article, you know, which wasn't always good. There was a lot of people that were sort of, you know, in the camp of, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. How could you possibly say such terrible things? Um, There were also a lot of people that came out and said, oh my God, you're so right. You know, we really need to do better at this. And so that was really heartening. And so for me, that response pulled me back in. And I kind of went, oh, wow, like there are a lot of people out here who do recognize this and do kind of acknowledge the kinds of issues we're having and the need for more complex dialogues and the need for more discussion, debates, clarity, information. And so that actually, for me, pulled me back in and thought, oh, wow, this is really where I do want to spend my time, energy and effort. And I think that was true of many of my co-authors. You know, I think many of them felt as if this is something that really does have a lot of potential to do something for people. And I think to to go back to what you originally quoted, that sort of concern that we had, which is that people might just push aside the idea of mindfulness because they're just sick of it. They just have heard too much about it. And that is a significant concern of mine, which is that 
many people that I talk to, particularly young people, you know, whenever I broach the topic of mindfulness, it's kind of like, oh, we did that, you know, um, we, we got that in, you know, in, in health class or whatever, you know, like, and, and I sort of say, well, what did you do? And they'll describe to me the app or the workbook that they got or the coloring and activity. And I go, but that's not at all what I'm talking about, but they're already over mindfulness. The problem is they're over a totally different version of mindfulness than the one that us group of scientists have studied and the one that we think might help people. So the problem sort of is, and this kind of goes back to this issue of the definition, which is that we've turned off a large chunk of the population to mindfulness broadly and whatever they think falls under the umbrella of mindfulness because of the void that's been filled and the people that have filled it and what they filled it with. Similar or not dissimilar, I should say, to mm -hmm. people's attitudes to organized religion. You know, people sort of go, I want nothing to do with that particular religion. I've had terrible experiences. But religions are not homogenous. All Christians are not the same, right? They have very different belief structures and ways of going about things. But what happens, I think, is you have a series of bad experiences and you go, I want nothing to do with it. And I think that is what has been happening with mindfulness. And part of the article and part of the, the drive for us to write it was to say, we are making the problem worse, you know, by not speaking up, by basically just going the path of least resistance is to work with these for-profit organizations that are making lots of money. We are actually making the problem for ourselves, something that we care about, something that we think could help people. We're making, we're, we're making the possibilities of that less or few, fewer. You know, as we're talking here about the implications of the issues we've been discussing here, something that does come to mind is the tech innovations and tech interventions that aim to uh, fast track or enhance mindfulness progress, whatever mindfulness is, on whatever scale we've decided to measure. For example, uh, ultrasound, neuromodulation, et cetera, to induce or move towards inducing profound states of equanimity, Kensho, Satori, that sort of thing. What do you think of those kinds of tech innovations? The headsets, you know, the ultrasound rays, uh, that sort of thing, the magic pills, if you like, of mindfulness. Do you see promise there? And how do you think the issues we've been discussing today interact with that side of the, I suppose, applied science of, of mindfulness tech in interventions? You know, it's, it's not even tech. Um, and I'm occasionally reluctant to go this route, but it's also psychedelics. It's also drugs. Oh, yeah. Um, because <laughs> I think at the heart of a lot of it is the desire for a shortcut. Mm. And, you know, look... I, I'm a, I'm a very practical person. I'm trained as a clinical psychologist and, you know, my mm -hmm. clinical approach, I have many colleagues who kind of would say that their perspective is essentially people need to do psychotherapy first because, you know, that has the, the, the least potential for, for possible harms. And, you know, I'm one, my perspective on that is sure. If the individual is willing to do it, you know, like if they're willing to do psychotherapy, great, but if they're not willing to do it, maybe the best thing we can do for them is to kind of encourage them to take medication, assuming that the medication may actually help them. So I'm not, at the, at the end of the day, I'm a pragmatist, but I guess my concern is that with shortcuts, there is a very real risk, not only that they won't work, right? And that people will waste their time, effort, energy, and money. So, you know, we talk about that um, in the paper, this idea of sort of opportunity costs, you know, that people may spend a lot of time on shortcuts um, aiming to get somewhere that 
they can't actually get fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also real possibility for harm, you know, that in the pursuit of, you know, some state that they think they need to have, they actually become harmed, you know, that that something terrible happens. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that there are shortcuts to some of these things. You know, I'm not sure that we can trick our brains into equanimous states. I'm not sure that we can stimulate our brain in a particular way or take a particular drug and just all of a sudden be in a permanently blissful state. I, I, I have no doubt that we can experience that acutely, you know, that it may be possible to use some kind of technological advancement or some kind of um, drug or some kind of other method as a, an acute shortcut, which is to say it allows us to have a taste of that experience. What worries me, though, is that is the experience that we're tasting, is it the same as the experience that we would get in the long run? You know, and, and an analogy kind of comes to mind, which is if you want to become an, an elite athlete, you need to put in the hours of practice. And I remember when I was in high school, um, a, a friend of mine who was really into fitness, you know, at one point had had bought one of these like electrical muscle stimulator things, you know, thinking, oh, that'll help me develop six pack abs, you know, and like, you know, products like these abound, right, sort of, you know, you know, develop this thing quick and fast. And, you know, I mean, these things are always of questionable efficacy. Now, so I guess what I'm saying sort of is, you may get certainly using that electrical stimulator of the abs, you get the experience of what it's like to do crunches. But you don't necessarily, at the end of the day, have the abs that you want. And and maybe the abs that you ultimately get from working out look nothing like the abs that you think you wanted. And that's part of, I guess, what I'm trying, if the analogy is too loose here, I apologize. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to say sort of is you may have an experience that to you feels like the equanimous state, that feels like the bliss or the joy that you think you will achieve with the long-term practice. But is that the same as the experience or what actually happens if you put in the hard yards? when you actually get to the state through long-term practice. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly kind of open to that question, but my concern is that it may misdirect people. They may think that what they ought to be getting to is this incredibly blissful, wonderful state. And if that's what they're after, the practice, the, the, the hard work that goes into getting there, the exercise, if you will, will be cast aside, right? Because why bother putting in, you know, years and years of practice when you get to the thing by just putting a helmet on and stimulating your brain or just by taking a drug? Why would you bother? You know, like, why would you do a whole bunch of work? So I think one of the arguments is often these are offered as tools to aid people in their practice. But is that really the case? You know, I've, I've never heard of an app, a meditation app that said we are designed for you to delete us, right? Like, in other words, we are designed to teach you how to meditate, but then once you you know what you're doing, you, you go off on your own and you keep practicing, right? I think fundamental to the business plans of many of these products is that people keep buying them and keep using them. So I think the kind of idea that they're simply an aid or that they give you a glimpse of the long-term goal, I'm not entirely sure that that is accurate, right? I think, and I, and I don't know that these companies or these organizations always are, are ill-intented in terms of what they're offering. I think a lot of people genuinely do want to help people and sort of go, meditation is hard. Here's a way of actually making it easier. But I'm not sure in the process of making it easier that you're actually being helpful in the sense that if you really want to do this, maybe it, it, there's an element of it which is just difficult. You know, Understanding what happens in your mind is, is challenging. 
you know, it's it's dull, it's boring, um, things come up that you don't want to think about, which is not to say that it has to get worse before it gets better. I think that's often talked about, and that's an empirical question. We don't know that that's true, but we know sort of that in order to have any long-term behavioral change, you have to put in a significant amount of effort. And I think these kind of advances in tech, the kind of renaissance in psychedelics kind of are another example of people's enthusiasm for quick fixes, for panaceas. And whether or not those things can actually yield lasting effects is something that I'm not yet convinced of. Well, and I think it brings up the question again about ingredients and the process versus the destination. So when you look at a practice and you think about the end goal and how fast you're getting to the end goal, what is being left out from that question is, is the process of getting to the end goal yielding results that are actually in fact important, maybe even more so than getting to the thing? And that's an empirical question, right? Is the is the process of doing the practice and developing the sort of dispositional traits needed to do the practice, like discipline and effort and being willing to be with difficulties and being willing to be with not being in your preferred state of meditation and sticking with long-term goals that are very hard, that aren't immediately satisfying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could make an entire list about the qualities needed to do practice. And those qualities would change based on dosage of practice, right? Are developing those qualities is definitely a fact of how practice was traditionally done. If we take all of that out, what are we missing and what are we gaining is a question that, you know, is open to my mind, but it's certainly worth considering that, I think, when we when we look at the shortcut. I, th I mean, that's one of the things I think goals is one of the things that I most often talk about that I think we often don't talk about goals enough. We don't talk about what is it that people want from these practices or these products. Because I think, you know, and what I, again, pragmatically, what I say sort of to people is, you know, that when, if people sort of ask me, well, which meditation program or app or which, you know, which temple should I go and join or which, you know, the first thing I'll ask is, well, what do you want to get from it? Mm -hmm. You know, because what I will practically say is if you just want some stress reduction, if you just want to sleep a little better, I don't know that you need to go and, you know, do a, a three month retreat, you know, often in the Himalayas, right? Like, you know, if you just need to sleep a little bit better, maybe you just need some good sleep hygiene, you know, like there's other things, you, or maybe you need to get a bit more exercise. Like that actually may be a much easier way to your mm -hmm. goal. Now, if you mm -hmm. want enlightenment or spiritual mm -hmm. awakening, I don't have the answers. You're asking the wrong person. Like, I don't know whether or not meditation can give you that. Maybe go talk to a rabbi or a priest or a monk. You know, I mean, they might be able to give you an answer from their perspective on that. Um, but I think that this week sort of conflate goals. You know, we don't, we don't yes. ask the question. But, but I also think another really critical point there is that I think we assume that we know the end goal. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, Chelsea, sort of, that, you know, we think we know where we're going, right? We think we know that we want to be at the top of the mountain. But one of the interesting things that I think happens in the process of, you know, of climbing the mountain, so to speak, is that we might realize along the way that there's a beautiful view, you know, a, a quarter of the way up. And that's all we really want. And that, you know, the amount of effort we put in to get that far up and, you know, what the benefit we got from getting to that point, it, you know, outweighs the risks of going higher, you know, and so, hey, we're really happy, right? Like, and we're done. And we went, we realized sort of that 
that's all we really ever wanted was a nice yeah. view and a bit of exercise, you know, whereas other people want to keep going. And so I think I've written an article about, you know, a, a colloquial article about this idea of maybe we ought to think about meditation as mountaineering, because yeah. I think it, there are some similarities sort of to the complexity of that as we assume everyone wants to get to the top. And so if the goal was to get to the top, the fastest way to get there would probably be like a helicopter, right? But maybe that's not the goal. You know, maybe yeah. people want the exercise. Maybe people want to have the experience of doing it. Maybe as mm -hmm. people climb, they realize that they don't actually want to go as high as they initially thought, or the cost is just not worth it for them, or the view is plenty good from part way up, you know? Um, and so I think, and as I think about sort of what happens in a mindfulness-based training program, one of the things that we know is that people really often start these programs for stress reduction or for better mental health, but that as they progress in these programs, their long-term goals change, right? So there's this sort of colloquial kind of discussion amongst mindfulness-based teachers who teach MBSR and MBCT and the like, that around week six is where the magic happens. You know, for whatever reason, you know, after about six weeks of doing this, people kind of get it. And I've observed that myself, you know, people kind of get it, like something happens and the way that they think about it shifts. And the goal is no longer perfection. The goal is no longer efficiency. You get to this point and you go, oh, I had the, this whole time I was thinking about it the wrong way. You know, like I thought I needed to be there, but in reality, I don't. Like, it's just all about how I think about myself. And maybe it's about how I even set my goals in the first place. In other words, maybe everything that I need is right in front of me, right? And so that kind of presents a fundamental challenge, this idea of a shortcut. Because mm -hmm. if in the process, what you learn is you had the wrong destination, you had the wrong goal, well, then if you bypass the process, you'll never learn that where you needed to be was not where you thought you needed to be. And yeah, to add to the time analogy and goals changing, I have several friends who are long-term practitioners and um, they've had similar experiences of a particular variety where actually what happens is when they, when life, when suddenly they're faced with a life challenge that is extraordinarily painful, like the loss of a parent or some grief that wouldn't be unnavigable in other cases, they suddenly realize that the difficulties of their practice are really the thing that mattered most meaning that the pleasure, the destination, the positive benefits actually in those moments were not what was the goal, but in fact, that their increased ability to face suffering. So not reduction of suffering, increased suffering, the increased suffering that their practice provided them, prepared them for life. And that they would never have, you know, gone into a practice saying, I'm going to practice suffering, but that in fact they did. And that in fact, that actually ended up being the most important thing. But it's very hard to sell something that says, well, I have an idea for a practice goal, practice suffering, right? That's not, it's very not friendly to commercial interests. You can't sell it to science or anything like that. And so that's the element that often gets stripped out that ends up actually being sometimes the thing, the thing that saves someone's life. And that's like the building up of the muscles on the hike. It wasn't the mountain. It wasn't the view. It was what it did to you on the way. And then what you could do with your new body when you needed that level of strength. And so I think that's something that doesn't get talked about as well, because in our scientific practice, we certainly can't say, well, we want to, well, we want 
attention. We're going to make people suffer. It's going to be bad. Quickly say a point sort of, I think, I don't know that it's necessarily, I don't know that we're increasing suffering. I don't think you were implying that we were, um, but I, I think it's all about how we engage with it, how we process it, how we make sense of it, how we tolerate it. But I think, you know, the, the, the problem, and I mean, in, in, in the mindfulness based programs in MBSR, you know, John talks about this idea, John Kabat-Zinn talks about this idea that sort of, you know, the goal is no goal. Like the intention is no intention. Like your the, the, a fundamental principle of the way that he he originally designed it to be taught was with this principle of non-striving. Like you have to let go of the idea of you're going to get somewhere. So there, Buddhism kind of and Buddhist ideas are really baked in in the way that the MVPs were originally designed. So, but but marketing, you're right, is hard because telling people we're not going to give you the answer. We're not going to give you joy and bliss. What we're really going to do is we're going to help you to make sense of suffering. We're going to help you to be able to live with suffering. In other words, it's almost like it's sort of like those commercials of accurate advertising, you know, like or or you know, really honest advertising. And there's this element of kind of the practice that's like, you know, maybe equanimity, what it's all about is actually knowing how to deal with suffering when it arises. And like that's not very sexy and like it's not going to sell well, but that's kind of the reality, which is to say that sort of, you know, we're not going to make the, the pains of life go away. No one has that magical wand here. You know, like we can't do that. But what we can do is when those pains do arise, we can help give you strategies and help give you experience dealing with them, personal experience. Like you can sit with your own pain and your own suffering. And by doing that in a small way on the meditation cushion, over time, you will learn how to do that in a big way. So when major events happen in your life, you will be more prepared for it. But I think the problem is essentially what's baked into that message, which is, but we can't make the stuff go away, right? Mm -hmm. Like life continue to be hard um, mm -hmm. and the practice is hard. And so I think when you think about it at the end of the day, like it's not a good selling point. It doesn't fit with the goals of kind of, you know, market capitalism, you know, like essentially no one wants to try to sell a product like, like how would you sell a product like that? Like no one would buy it. Like, why would you buy that? You know, why would you buy a product that says it's really hard? It may not actually work. It's certainly not going to make your life less painful, but maybe you won't view the pain as being such a bad thing, you know, like it just really does not sell. Right. So I think that's the challenge <laughs> that we face. Well, I, th there may be a market in a, in a world of increasing ease and convenience for just precisely such a challenge. I think we see that in certain fitness uh, challenges. You know, let's all get together in a field and someone in combat khakis will shout at you and make you do lots of push-ups. You know, it's going to be painful. It's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be cold, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to hurt. Um, but that's kind of the point. There, there might be a bit of a, a sort of market for that. And of course, the, the other aspect is this idea of letting go. It's a, it's a practice of non-striving. Of course, that is simply a means to attain one's goal. So the, the idea of letting go of, of the attempt to get the goal is sold, I think, paradoxically, as the best way to get there. So yeah. unfortunately, I think when one thinks that through, at least outside of that context, and that's difficult to buy. You know, I think we're coming near the end of our time here. I wonder, Professor Damme, what can the individual meditator, let's say listening to this podcast, who's, who's, who's listened to this and you know, you've 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 killed a lot of sacred cows, and you've 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 questioned uh, a lot of the bases. I think of uh, well, of, of certain research, of certain products, and maybe even of certain people's practices. What would you say to the uh, practitioner who's who's listened to this and thinking, "Gosh, who can I trust? What metrics can I use? Uh, where can I turn?" And what would you say to the individual meditator who has uh, made it this far with us? 
Well, I mean, look, the first thing that I always say is I have no objection to an individual pursuing a practice that they feel benefits them. And I think that's really important, right? Because I think I have colleagues and, and you know, colleagues sort of including those that sort of were part of writing that paper who felt as if this, th this academic work was just too challenging to their personal belief systems, mm. to, to their commitment to meditation practice. Mm. And, and some of them in particular sort of felt like, I don't know what to do with the fact that the, the, the evidence and the science that we have is challenging some of the things that are the most important to me. And I think some of them and, and many of co many colleagues I've had in the field have had to make really hard decisions with that to say yeah. what's more important to me, knowing the truth or knowing the answer via science or feeling comfortable with my life's purpose and meaning in my belief system. And some of them want, you know what, I want to stop pushing because I just want to continue to do what I'm doing and practice the way I'm practicing because it feel I feel like it helps me. So I think that's a that's a different thing. And I think sort of what I would often say is at the individual level, it's up to the individual to decide what works for them. Now, when it starts to come to sort of what do we recommend to people more broadly? How do we as professionals, as clinicians, as scientists, how do we make policies? How do we make recommendations? And I think we have to take a lot more care there because the way that it's being approached or promoted now is that you know, it's a it's maybe a necessary evil to get everybody to do a bad practice with the hopes that some of them will eventually do a really good one. And mm -hmm. I think that I don't know that that's true. You know, I think a lot of people will probably either get stuck in the bad practice and keep doing it or will try the bad practice and just quit totally. So I think we need to rethink that. I think if, if you're an individual meditator and you're trying to think, well, what do I do? I think the first thing I would say is think about, you know, well, what are the actual goals of your practice? is your practice and the way in which you're supported in that practice, are they actually designed to meet your goals? Are you actually getting what you want out of it? I think one of the things that happens to many people is they can get gaslighted by the tradition they're in or their teacher they're working with, or even the academic they're listening to. And they get stuck in this idea of, but this is the way I'm supposed to do it. And even though it's terrible and it's unpleasant, and I'm actually having really terrible negative experiences, like I'm dissociating, but my teacher tells me I'm supposed to work harder and I'm supposed to double down and, and, you know, now do it twice as long. I mean, I think if that's the case for you and it's not actually helping you to achieve your goals, you should back away and go, okay, well, maybe this is not working for me. Like, you know, maybe this is not ticking the boxes that it was meant to. Like, maybe this is not doing for me what I set out to do. Now, in terms of like, who can you trust? Well, I mean, look, that's a really hard question. I mean, I think I'm reluctant to say do your own research um, because I know what that entails in the modern age. But one of the things sort of that I think is, it's useful to explore what people are willing to disclose about themselves. So academics, you know, prominent teachers, are there ethics statements? Are they willing to tell you about their own beliefs and their own engagement with the tradition, about their own practice, about how they got where they are? Because if they're not, if they don't disclose what their background or their training is, or they don't disclose to you why they're kind of willing to sell you the things they're selling you, to me, that raises a red flag. So if somebody doesn't, if somebody says, I am the foremost expert in teaching whatever meditation practice, but they don't give you any indication in how they got to be the foremost expert, that's a huge red flag, right? Um, any scientist sort of who is unwilling to even talk about or be open about sort of their potential biases, again, that's a red flag to me, right? What Because if someone sort of is not willing to even just discuss or be open to their own perspectives, you know, I think that suggests sort of an unwillingness to, ref to, to engage in self-reflection. In, in, in the social sciences, you know, self-reflexivity is really important. Knowing your own biases is really important. Increasingly, we know that's even true of physics. You know, in, in, in advanced, you know, models of physics, we know that the observer perspective is important. 
right? So I think when you're thinking about sort of who to trust and who to think about, I think you're trying to get a sense of, is the person willing to disclose their own kind of training background, their own challenges, their own biases? And as I said, genuinely, can they potentially help me to get where I'm going? You know, have they given me all the information? And I think particularly per that conversation we had about suffering, are they prepared to give me information, even if it may dissuade me, right? So they prepared to paint the full, full picture for me. So I think one of the things we think about in clinical context is you always get informed consent. If you're going to have a surgical procedure, the doctors say to you, look, there's an X percent chance this may go horribly wrong and you may die on the operating table, right? In, in meditation, I think there should be a similar willingness to kind of warn people. And I think really good teachers do that. I think they say, look, this may not get you where you want to go. And what you may realize is actually this process is hard and slow and painful. And I think there's something to me, and if a teacher or an academic or, or a person kind of writing a book is actually genuinely doing that, is saying to you, this is going to be hard, not in a flippant kind of, yeah, of course, I have to acknowledge that, but in a genuine way of acknowledging this may not be for you. There may be other things you need to do. I'm not saying you automatically trust that person, but to me, that gets a big green tick is like that. That's probably something that ought to be there. Professor Van Dam, Chelsea, fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been such an incredible conversation. Of course, links to the papers and uh, the, the websites and so on will be in the show notes. Professor Van Dam, whereabouts can people follow your research and uh, see what you're up to next? The best place is the Contemplative Studies Center. So there's a, um, we have a website through the University of Melbourne um, that, that is probably the, the best and easiest way to, for people to check what we're doing and what the center is all about. And I mean, the center, I should say, sort of is really kind of built off of, in large part, this paper, you know, that the center sort of the, the vision for the center and the way we set up the center was basically, um, let's do this, let's do more of this, let's be more honest, let's be more accurate, let's do better science. And because it was philanthropic, you know, it meant that we could do it in the way that, mm. you know, we kind of outlined in the paper where it needs to be a bit slow and we need to ask some really hard questions and we need to do some studies that where we're going to get answers that people probably don't like. And because of the way that it's funded, it means we can do those studies. You know, it means that we can get results and go, oh, shit, none of this stuff works. And we can publish that and we go, well, you know, it doesn't mean we lose our jobs. So, um, yeah, no, I, I would I would highly recommend that people check out the Contemplative Studies Center website at the University of Melbourne, because that, I think, has all the information about all the ways in which we're trying to kind of address a lot of the issues that are raised in this in this particular paper. Wonderful. Thank you, Professor Nicholas Van Dam and Chelsea Fasano. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.